All right, then Dominic, then just give a sign and we start. Go. Go. You just go. Yep. Well, good evening, everybody. This is um, um, the maybe the 14th uh, meeting of Chiron Talks, uh, an open and um, um, casual conversation about open higher education, open learning um, opportunities uh, to use um, technical devices to improve learning. And um, Dominic Orr and Sabrina Konsok, both uh, working with Chiron, um, Open Higher Education, have initiated this project and um, always invite interesting people to, um, to add something to the panorama of this question. And today we have um, Gary Metkin as a guest. He is a um, 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 PhD at the University of California, or what is the exact name? California, uh, Berkeley. Yeah. Berkeley, exactly. And um, he has uh, published and uh, thought thoroughly about a problem that is really interesting. It is um, the, um, the lifelong learning aspect, the aspect of um, uh, elder people um, um, participating, continuing to participate in, in higher education. And he has um, written about the 60-year um, curriculum and um, other things and going deeper into, into this topic. So, Gary, a good evening and welcome. Well, um, were you surprised being invited to a discussion like this? Not, not really. Uh, I've known Dominic for a little while, and uh, we've crossed our paths several times, and we, we certainly have intersecting interests and very interested in the Chiron organization and, and the great things you guys are doing. And certainly it, it fits in with... Uh, what you're doing fits in with uh, my interests, uh, which has always been uh, lifelong education, uh, open education, and now more recently, uh, digital credentialing. So those three areas are, are things that uh, Dominic and I have uh, intersected on in several ways. So I'm very pleased to be with you today and uh, happy to uh, expand on some of the ideas we've talked about in the past. Yeah, I'd also like to really thank you, Gary, for, for being here today. And I've, I've in recently, I've every time I've talked about lifelong learning now, I've just said it's about the 60-year curriculum because I think it's such a nice idea because it, it, it contains this idea of curriculum, which people find kind of safe. And then, okay, but no, it's for 60 years. Now, why? You know, and it's not. And the interesting thing is, we were just talking um, just before in the kind of prep, and Sabrina was also saying, you know, people say, okay, well, what is lifelong learning? And she's saying, you know, things are changing so fast that we need to be learning things to keep up. So um, I think it's it's a really nice way to think of this idea that somehow it's trying to find ways of offering continual opportunities for learning. And I think often we're learning anyway, but we also, it's a recognition piece as well. So that's why I'm super happy to be having this discussion. Great, well, let me expand a little bit on the 60 year curriculum and, and maybe uh, correct some impressions that already have been put forth that I would, I would like to counter a little bit. First of all, the 60 year curriculum in my mind starts when a person becomes a freshman in, high, in, in college. That's the first time a, a higher education gets their hands on a student. And although the 60 year curriculum looks like it's lifelong learning, actually the 60 year curriculum starts in the freshman year because we have to start right away in the freshman year helping people understand what they're gonna do 
in the future and prepare for a life of learning. Lifelong learning is what individuals do. The 60-year curriculum is what universities do in response to that need. And the curriculum is, is a purposeful phrase because it does relate to academics and it does relate to the notion that we offer formal learning uh, opportunities for students throughout their lifetimes, okay? Not only, not only during their time with us, four or six years that it takes to get their bachelor's or master's degrees, but beyond that, uh, beyond that well into their, into their retirement years. The goal of the 60-year curriculum is to make the university present at each point of trans life transition for an individual. We want, the, we want the university to be meaningful and helpful as students not only go from, from high school to college, but also from college to work, from career to career, from job to job, and from career to retirement. We want the university to be active in each one of those transitions and helpful in terms of educating people as they go through the, through the uh, period. So my title at the University of California, Irvine is uh, somewhat exemplifying that and, and il illustrative of the fact that at UCI, we've recognized this continuum by, by making me not only Dean of Continuing Education, but also Vice Provost for Career Pathways. So I'm responsible for 36,000 students trying to get jobs when they graduate. And that means starting again at the freshman year and helping them get some intentionality toward what they're gonna do when they graduate. It's a little bit different in America than in Europe where you know generally students choose a major and stick with it uh, throughout, their college, throughout their college career. At, at my university, two-thirds of the students change their major while they're in their four-year term. So we have a lot of changes and people sorting things out and figuring out where they want to go and so forth. And so that puts a lot of strain and stress on, you might say, what students intend to do after they graduate. And so it goes into, um, it, it, it really goes into the psychology and the, and the, and the help and support we're trying to determine uh, what the meaningful career would be when they graduate. So that's basically uh, the the underlying notion of what the what the 60 year curriculum is all about. And again, to make the university relevant throughout the lifetime of the student and not just say, here's your degree. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And maybe you'll give us money later on. We want to be there for everybody uh, as they go through their lives. Well, um... Gary, uh, the, uh, apparently the term lifelong learning um, in this sense is not so old and now you are focusing on helping universities to get better in providing this certain um, um, attention and service. But at the same time, if I speak to very clever people, they say, why university? There are so many other um, places and ways to learn now. Um, do you think the university must have a special role in this and must professionalize in this task or why can't this do others? Well, I think uh, again, you get to you get to the very definition of what the role of a university is, and universities have survived, uh, as you know, since the, the since Bologna, by by adjusting to the needs of society, right? And if they do not adjust, they're not likely to be to persist, 
And so we have to adjust to the needs of society. And so certainly as life expectancy has expanded, uh, our, our role in society also, uh, I think, must expand. Uh, we, we, otherwise, we will be considered irrelevant after graduation, and that's not, a, that's not a good thing for anybody, I think. And by the way, universities possess the body of knowledge. They're the, the, the fountain of new knowledge and new, new expressions of, of learning and so forth, and even, even uh, research into the way people learn. And if we simply uh, concentrate on the students in their formal degrees, um, we will, I think we'll, we'll ultimately lose the legitimacy that we, that we so, so desperately now want to hang on to as, as higher education throughout the world comes, especially in America, comes under more and more attack. So I think we have to really, uh, really be, um, be responsible and responsive to what people's, what people need. And, and again, but, but there's, a, there's a further thing that I'd like to point out, and that is that one of the major things we're trying to do at UCI is to help faculty understand that the actual creation of skills that are valuable in the workplace are also very consistent with the aims of of formal education. We all know, we all can name the things that we want our graduates to be when they graduate. We want them to be critical thinkers, problem solvers, good communicators, able to work with others, able to understand the big picture and so forth. That's exactly what, what, uh, what employers want as well. And so insofar as we can actually uh, place into our regular curriculum the skills that are that are being needed in the workplace, the better off we're going to be. In the United States, very a number of um, studies have confirmed that over 85% of the students and their parents who enter higher education say their number one reason for entering higher education is to find a meaningful career. If we don't recognize that as a motivation for students, how can we call ourselves learner-centered. Okay. I think, yeah, I think you're so right with this. I think it's a lot to do with, we've also had a huge expansion in the number of people who are taking part in higher education. And what it's actually also meant is higher education is playing an even greater role in shaping our societies than in the past. But uh, very often, I think, Part of this is we have this idea, if we were to talk kind of on an abstract level about higher education, we often say, you know, it's one of the central things for uh, societal development, for thinking of how we're going to, how uh, are we going to unleash innovation in society, etc. But then when it comes to the educational piece, even if kind of the theoretical debate is different, we often do think of higher education as something that it finishes the minute you leave the building, which is the campus. And uh, so I've, I was calling it recently in another discussion when we were talking about research about higher education. I was calling research about higher education, uh, research about higher education buildings, because for me, often the concept is really kind of encapsulated in 
you're only a student of higher education when you're within this building. And so I think this way of kind of reconceptualizing it um, is, is really helpful. And I think it's, it's not so much new, but we've had problems, you know, implementing it in this kind of form. So, um, so I think a lot of what you're doing is, is very useful because on the one hand, you start with, as you say, you start thinking about this right at the beginning of a, a student's studies, but you also don't say, okay, now they've left the building, we're finished. But you, you think of how can the learning pathway continue beyond that? And at the moment, and, and, and I'm always thinking, you know, to your point, you know, about, OK, well, aren't there other institutions? There are. But I think it's about cooperation and working together on these things rather than just saying, OK, the, the student has now left the building. They've got the highest degree they could have. I'm done with them. Yeah, I think uh, universal education, universal higher education is... Uh, is just something that that goes on, and the, going back to to what we do in the four or six years we have students as degrees. I to, to talk about your buildings. My, my university is is now operating with almost all empty buildings, for instance. So buildings are, are not much uh, not much in present right now in our in our lives. But That's true. Um, I I think the point is that we've done a lot of research and all of our research indicates that the more that the stronger the intention of the student toward what they want to do after their graduation the better the student they are they get higher grade point averages their time to degree is is, is shorter uh, they're happier with their education when they graduate so um, again one of the one of the faculty one of the faculty typical faculty reactions to the 60-year curriculum as it applies to the four or six year degree program is we're not a vocational school we shouldn't be doing this there are other units that do vacation we're a research one university we should not be doing these kinds of things well it turns out that um, again active learning requires now if you talk about active learning it requires now much more relevant and real kind of applications of learning to, in order to learn the content if you, you can learn the content, but then you have to learn how to apply it. And as you apply it, you learn more about the content. So there's a circularity toward this notion. And it turns out, for instance, that in, in many of our courses, say in engineering, we have a course that requires a project of people to do it, work on a project together. Well, that's really, really good practice for what's gonna happen when the engineers graduate, right? But we never give them any instruction on project management. We don't give them instruction on how to present data properly. We don't give them instruction on, on how to work as a team or how to be a team member or a team leader or, or deal with difficult people in a team. And and turns out that a little bit of research indicates that if you give them that training, they actually get to the content much better and much more, more clearly than if they don't have that kind of training because they spend so much time trying to figure out what to do that they waste their time and do it. So there's, there's a lot of interplay between the actual pedagogical effectiveness of the, the time to degree and the notion that we want to prepare people for the 60 year curriculum while they're still in degree programs. Um, Gary, the 60 year curriculum, is this actually a curriculum? So um, could you tell us about 
is it, is it a structural program? Is it a proposal how to um, how to offer um, general degrees or how, what what is it actually? Yeah, well, at UCI, we're there's been a lot of talk, as Dominic will tell you, about the six-year curriculum, but uh, nobody has really, as far as I can tell, really put one together. Well, we're trying to put one together. What we've done is we've we've we call it the UCI 60 60-year life transition curriculum. And the notion is that we're going to uh, we're we're going to um, we we've developed a we've developed six life transitions from college from high school to college from college to work from from job to job and from if you want to change and changing careers and then retirement each one of those parts of that we have it in a pie sh shape. You click on it and you'll find a number of categories and then you click on that and you'll find courses that actually help you in that transition. So we're actually developing the, the curriculum as a curriculum rather than as just a, a talking point that sort of puts everything together. So we're, we're, we're trying to operationalize that uh, notion in our own, in our own way and under our own sort of conception of what life transitions are. So the, the curriculum, the 60-year curriculum, is kind of a modular offer to apply to, um, to different kind of learners that they can use that's, for themselves. Is this right? That's right. As they, as they come up to a life transition, we hope they'll turn to us and find the right pathway to the learning pathway, the, the right learning pathway that they, that they will be following in order to achieve their, their transition successfully. That's what we're trying to do. And um, what I would be interested in, like, how did you manage um, to create that change, right? Because especially in Germany, it's just how we said before, right? Like, you're not supposed to switch subjects. You're supposed to go through very, very quickly. And then you never see your university again unless you become a researcher, obviously. And you also said, right, there were some sentiments also against that concept at some point. So how, how do you manage to create that change and to, to make it a reality pretty much? Well, we have, uh, you call it, you might call it in, in Europe, you might call it further education. We have university extension operations or we call them university extension or continuing education units that sort of fly alongside the regular degree programs most of the time. And they're separate. They're separate units that have their own. That they're mostly, most of them are self-supporting. Many of them offer degrees actually to part-time students, uh, adult, adult wor working adults, part-time students. And so, in in America, I think we have you have you have similar things in Europe, similar units in Europe, but not to the extent that we have in America. And by the way, there's a there's a market there's a market. I think there's a market issue in Europe because basically, with your highly subsidized higher education, you tend to look at education as something you should get for free and not have to pay for it. In America, even before a student, even before a kid is conceived, the parents start saving for college, right? Because they're they're going to make an investment in college for their students. It's going to cost them a lot of money. And so we already think of, of, of education as, a, as an investment in our future 
rather than something that is our right to get, you know, and, and, and so when you, when you continue that into the, into the, into the 60 year curriculum, you're not used to paying for it. How do you subsidize it? How does it get to the, to the right people and so forth? We have a mark, we have a market already sort of set up and receptive of the idea of paying for education as a, as an investment. Well, um, well, um, I can tell you that the fact that we don't pay for higher education doesn't mean that people don't conceive it as an investment. Um, the, um, there's, of course, the, the other aspect, which is not um, market-formed, which is that um, people go to university, and I suppose this is different when you're elder and we change one job to another, which is the point that interests us, but people go to university to form communities. No, This is a very yes. Very important, very central thing of I want to go to meet the people and so on. But well, um, this interesting thing about your um, six-year curriculum, um, uh, the, how 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 does it actually actually work? Um, um, you have analyzed the needs of people. Let's say let's talk about them who are not the first time in university, who have left it already, and now they are seeking a further step in learning. <laughs> so what? <clears throat> What special needs do they have, and um, what has changed to what they need now? So uh, it would be interesting to understand um, what the um, contemporary situation uh, makes makes life of a person and its need, her need, her his need to learn different from the past. So that that this what you do becomes so important now. I think it's always been important, but the, with the rapid pace of the change of technologies, the rapid changes that we have in our society. And the notion that now people tend to have tend to be in more than one career in their lives, they change careers sometimes three or four or five times. That creates a, a new new market for lifelong learning and new needs for lifelong learning. And for instance, at UCI, we have 80 certificate programs. These certificate programs are about 100 at least 120 hours of of work uh, per per program in programs like project management, which is rarely taught as a subject in, in colleges, uh, business and analysis, uh, teaching English as a second language, um, uh, systems engineering, uh, all kinds of IT courses, uh, blockchain, blockchain technology, Python, all those kinds of things. Those are things that you don't really get in college. And yet, you know, when you get into the world, you have to know Python or you have to know SQL, you have to know these things that we don't have courses in the universities that actually teach that stuff because of software package, right? Sometimes our students have to know that stuff in order to pass a course, but it doesn't show up on a transcript or anything. And so that's that's sort of shading into the digital credentialing discussion we might have too. But you get the idea that that people, people increasingly people need lifelong learning because they're making changes. In our case, we have people, most of the people that take our courses and pay three to $6,000 for one of these certificate programs, they're upgrading their careers because they need to know about digital, they're marketers, they need to know more about digital marketing now, or they're changing careers. They wanna go from from what they are now into a paralegal program or something like that. So uh, we're, we're looking, we're, we're filling a need 
that people, many, many, many people have in our society. So I would like to pick up exactly on your point, Gary, which is, so the one point is offering this and the other point is making sure or helping it to be of value to the learner. And I think one way of making it valuable is to try and make sure that the, 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 the credentials they get are somehow linked together. And I know you're, you're um, working a lot on uh, alternative credentials. Can you say something about the place of these kind of linking pieces in, in, in making this link then between what you've originally learned maybe and then what you're adding on top of it and, and how that can work to really give value to the learner? Yeah, digital credentialing is really a new world for higher education. And any university that does not understand and undertake digital credentialing will fall behind, in my view. Um, digital credentialing frees us from the artificial academic categories that we've been laboring under for many, many years. I am not saying anything negative about degrees or about higher education, the way it's conducted, but I am saying that when we talk about continuing education and further education, the, the notion of packaging it into either courses that have certain hours and associated with them and certain and grades and so forth, this is a, an artificial sort of packaging of learning projects that digital credentialing has now freed us from because now we not we do not need we do not need to um, have all kinds of of uh, rules and regulations about what counts as something the university can attest to. We do need to have rules. We do need to know what we're going to what we're going to credential, and, but we have at our disposal now our own ability to define what those things are. And the most important of that is the notion of competency. Universities are engaged in assessing learning. They're not engaged in assessing competency. What happens if you get 85% in your course in bridge building? Would you be 85% competent to build a bridge? Yeah. The point the, the point, you get the point that um, we have the ability now to say that, for instance, somebody who's an engineer who graduates from our courses had to have some sort of CAD-CAM software expertise. We now have the ability to say with a digital credential, this person is, is expert at the intermediate level in certain software CAD CAM, right? We would never have that as a course because that's teaching a proprietary software or something, right? But we now can do that with, with, uh, within, within the body of knowledge that we're pro providing to, to, to matriculated students. That extends beyond the graduation to continuing education. So when people, when people present themselves and say, I can do 3D printing because I know Rhinoceros 
then we can attest to that. They can put that on their resume with a digital credential that certifies that the university has indicated and tested them that they have this particular competency. Doesn't matter whether it took 120 hours to get it or three minutes to get it, they're competent. And, and so that, that's, the, that's the huge freedom that we're, that we're now being presented with in terms of being able to serve not only our students with competitive advantage in the marketplace by showing these digital competencies, but also filling the skills gap that all of our regional e economies have and, and being tied to those kind of needs in the regional economy with actual university attestations to particular skills is really cementing that relationship between the university and and the and the and the local economy and the local employers. So there's a big there's a big plus here for universities that can really grab onto this and, and go with it. I also think you made a oh no Sabrina please. No, it's just a small point because what I find so interesting is there is that big shift from like counting hours to really counting hours. yeah right yeah. because um that's a debate i'm having quite often now also when it comes to work contracts right for example so in there you would also count the hours just as you would count the hours you spent in a university right obviously with a lot of tests and stuff involved but it doesn't necessarily talk about how capable you are or what you what you achieve right you could also be done after four hours and then spend the rest of the four sitting at your desk doing nothing. So I find it really, really interesting to look more at what do I want to learn and um, do I have the competency or not? And then also just yeah, accrediting that. I wanted to, I wanted to make a, an additional point exactly to that. So this shows why we're working together because we're thinking in the <laughs> same direction. And um, exactly to your point, Gary, that... Uh, um, there has to be a place for actually just assessing competencies without saying that we have to determine the, the process or even the input behind it. And um, I can tell you at the moment, I'm part of a working group on micro-credentials on, on the European level. And one of the questions for the whole issue of micro-credentials has been exactly this, which was, do we need to determine, in, determine a certain number of hours which must have been kind of workload for this to be recognized as a micro-credential? Um, there are these things already, you know, there's, there's, the, um, there's, there's a consortium which says a micro-credential has, has to include 100 hours of workload. And we, yeah, uh, right. the rest of us in the working group are saying no, because this limits the whole reason you want it you don't you know you'll just be taking all of the kind of innovative potential out of this by just trying to make it look like a normal certificate yeah that's right there, there's a huge look we have a great opportunity to to really be a competency based to really issue competency based credentials there's a huge pressure to continue just to digitize learning accomplishment and to take because digitization adds something that we haven't generally had in higher education. Very few universities even today have a digitized transcript. You have to go through the mail, you have to 
send your money. You have to have it sent in a confidential envelope to somebody. You know, all that kind of stuff is huge barrier to getting your particular story out to employers or whatever, right? With with dig, digital, with the digital credentialing, all you do is pull it down from the thing, put it on your resume. It's there. People can click on it. They can see who gave you the competency, what you're competent in, and so forth and so on. It's just right there immediately available to anybody that wants to see it at your at your lead at you know depending on where you want to put it so it it completely it it frees the student from the tyranny of the attestation mechanism of the university basically it lets the student do what they want with their with their with their competency badge so um, well, well anyway, go yeah. ahead. Well, how is the demand for this? I mean, um, it's especially talking about people changing from one job to another. We have a lot of institutions here in Germany where then um, you get help for this. This is like to help you to understand your competencies, help you to write your resume, help you to analyze the market where you want to go. So these are also competency of agility in, within the, the, the place of work where you want to go. Um, is this the kind of um, credentials that you're talking about? Exactly. Uh, the point is that if you can distinguish your, for instance, we we hire a lot of IT people in my unit. Almost everybody will have something called something on their on their resume saying HTML. I know HTML. We don't know what the heck they mean when they say they're competent in HTML. We have no idea. They could have done something very simple. They could have be a, a total expert, but we don't know. We have to bring them in and test them to see if they know HTML. Well, with a digital badge, we you can actually specify exactly what you do know how to do with HTML. There's a list of things that are important and, and very hard to do and things that are very easy to do. Well, you put those things down in a badge and then employers know exactly what what you what you can do. And by the way, they can also, if it's digital, if it's in digital form, they can digitally search resumes for exactly the kind of skills they need. And more and more, you're asking about um, market acceptance of these things. It's very early in market acceptance, except in certain in certain realms. In the IT in the IT world, these badges have been in place for a long time, not issued by universities, but by Places like Google and Amazon—not Amazon, Google, Salesforce, um, AWS, Amazon, Amazon, yeah, you know—and so uh, IBM. They've all been issuing badges for a long time, and these badges are accepted and and recognized by employers. So the employers themselves are issuing badges, and those badges are being accepted by other employers. So there's evidence that there is a there is a market acceptance of these things. It's just the universities haven't been involved in it very much. Hmm. Do you see also a conflict? I mean, the, um, we have the discussion here sometimes that um, um, the, 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 the graduates that leave the university, they should be generally educated. No, they, they should have a broad knowledge of their field, let's say an engineer, not only uh, mathematics and, and architecture, but also uh, maybe the history of, of engineering or urbanistic uh, um, as aspects. However, 
um, the the engineer leaves the or the the student leaves the university with a with a with a package of general knowledge and some specific knowledge, and then he enters the work uh, the the world of work. Um, the discussion that we have here sometimes is that the employers have also a duty to uh, to do education or to how you call this a training on the job. So to 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 make of these rough um, trunks they get the sizzled um, 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 sculpture they need for the particular work. Um, how is that relation of um, the, the, the employer further educate, educating their employees and the university? Is there is there a discussion, debate? Is there a debate in, 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 in California too? Or how, how do you view this thing? It's absolutely true that the uh, tendency for, for corporations and employers to not invest in training of or onboarding their their people is is a is a big problem, uh, and they they tend to push. The, there's a debate. They say, "Oh, you're graduating people that don't have the skills that we need," but then they're not willing to train them in the skills that they need, right? I mean, there. So there's this there's this, we, and we talk about the skills gap. Okay, you you, you graduated you graduated somebody from your university and they don't know how to use Excel. They don't, basically. And everybody in the world who goes into into the world of work needs to know Excel. Now, whose job is it to teach Excel? Is it the university or is it the employer, or is the or is it the individual himself or herself? Right. That's the sort of the debate that goes on, and, and there's a tension there always in, in, in play. Some 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 employers are much more much more uh, keyed to tr do their own in-house training. They pe take people in, they put them through a, a process of training and a, and a apprenticeship and so forth. But others just want to hire somebody that can hit the ground running, and they don't. They don't want to invest in any training. So, and then, the, then, then of course, they blame the university for not producing the kind of things that kind of students that they want. So, it's a it's a tension, and um, I think the the notion of digital badging helps could help because if employers could express what they want students to have, then if if universities can be the tester. And be help people achieve those competencies, and then, and then issue the digital credential. That brings again, it brings the university closer to the needs of the employer and and addressing the skills gap in any sort of economic region, and helps cement what is really a necessary, I think, relationship, increasingly necessary relationship between employers who want talent from the university and the university who wants their graduates to be successful. When they graduate and get a good salary. Yeah, I agree with this, and um, I often say that the skills gap is largely a communication gap as well, and it's to do with exactly this point that the university is thinking what does it think the labour market needs, and then passes on this person to the labour market, and the labour market says, no, I wasn't thinking of that kind of person, and we need to think of ways of kind of bringing these two two parts of society together. And I think this kind of badging, um, because of the fact that it's, it's, a, it's a transparent documentation of competencies that either somebody has or somebody should have, that can actually help the communication between two sides. 
And I think <clears throat> for me, also thinking of the, the 60 year curriculum, for me, there's a totally different pathway that the learner could be taking as well, which is um, a learner who actually then only thinks much later in career, let's say at 20 or 30, maybe older, that now they've got to a state where the university degree or further training at a university will help them or make them feel more satisfied with their life, but it will help them to make a different kind of contribution to either society or to the labour market. And in a way, if we've got a way of saying, okay, well, this person as well has been collecting kind of documentation of these competencies and skills they've been developing, it helps the pathway into the university as well. So you would be going in later, and then maybe that's a point where one can say, okay, so certain things that this learner should be doing, we've already got evidence that they've already learned that and they already have these skills. And it helps this kind of transition, which starts much later in a career. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, um, a lot of people, you know, right now, if you want to get a, a really good MBA in the United States, you have to be working in the world for about four or five years before you go back and enter. And so, um, and getting getting into these schools is very difficult and competitive, and and the schools will hire people who they know will get a good job when they graduate because their metrics are are based upon the the salary. So, you know, the the better the entry, the better the more experience and the better they are in getting into the MBA program, the better the university looks when they graduate because they're going to get higher salaries, right? And so, getting prepared for the, the, the further education in terms of certain kinds of degrees is really uh, an important part and continuing education and the 60 year curriculum can play that part in getting those people prepared. Well, we got to wrap up a little bit um, as we already have talked such a long time. But one thing, if I talk, um, if we hear about a 60 year curriculum, um, a special group um, emerges, which, which are the Elder ones like me, I'm already 50 nearly now, or like Dominic, 60. So, uh, or, 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 or like me, or like me, 76. All ages. This, this particular special interest group, um, can you tell us something about just to make this last point and you, you others with the question so we get into the time frame a little bit? Can you tell us about what, what special, um, uh, like credentials, uh, competencies, and difficulties uh, this group has? Well, I'll tell you that we have a very, we, we pre-COVID, we had uh, about 800 uh, people in what we call our uh, lifelong learning and retirement program. And these people uh, are, are self-activating, self uh, self-initiating learning co-op, you might say. They get together, they decide what, they're, what they want to learn, and then they go out and they find people to teach them. And they, they actually don't pay anybody to teach them. Everybody does it on a volunteer basis. One third of these of the people that teach them are either uh, UCI faculty or emeritus faculty. One third are people from the outside, and one third are people from the group itself. And these people have really wonderful curriculum on things that that uh, they didn't, they weren't able to take in college, for instance. They, they take literature courses, they take science courses and so forth. And they, 
and they get together and they're the average age right now is 72. They get together in groups. They, they, they come together. They socialize pre-COVID. They socialized. They learned something. They had talks and so forth. And so keeping the mind active and learning active in later years and the community that forms, the learning communities and the community factors that form around these people are, are really important. We have one one lady who's, who's in her 101st year and she comes, she drives every, every day to the classroom, okay, by herself. From, so you, you get the idea that we've, we've, it's, a, it's a really a, a wonderful way of, of, of filling out the card, you might say, in, the, in a continuing education program. But, that's, but we found also that people who are in their 80s want the same courses that people who are in their 30s want, right? They want to know about stuff and they, it doesn't. So the, the things we have for our regular professional level courses are being, being populated in some sense by older people. So it's a, it's really a very mixed bag and, and the more choices you give people, the better off you are going to be and the society is going to be. Well, thank you, Gary. Well, compared to this 101-year-old lady, you're quite a young pal, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if, if I start at 18, my 60-year curriculum is up in about two more years. So I was thinking two more years, I won't, have, I, won't have to, I won't have to learn anything, I guess. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, well, thank you. If, if, uh, do we have to add something, Dominic or Sabrina? Otherwise, I would say thank you very much for being here today. And well, let's do this now. Um, our Chiron talks um, uh, are only.